says in our parable, we've been looking at these parables the last couple of weeks. This is the third of a set of parables where he is confronting the religious leaders of the day. And he says in our parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a, a king who gives a wedding feast for his son, a royal wedding feast. When I say that, a royal wedding feast, what are some images that come to mind? Uh, some people might think of uh, Princess, well, Prince Charles and Lady Diana. Remember that wedding? Nin a long time ago, 1981. Can you believe it? Over 30 years ago? You know, at that wedding reception, uh, only 120 people were invited. And there were 27 wedding cakes, and there was a cake that was, the main cake was five feet, and it took 14 weeks to make, and they had a duplicate just in case something happened to that cake. <laughs> then we have uh, Prince William and Kate Milton, their recent wedding. They spent $800,000 on flowers. There was $150,000 on food spent at their wedding feast, and $80,000 or $60,000 in champagne. Grace was here in the first service, my oldest daughter. I said, don't take notes on any of this stuff. You're not even getting close. And I wish that the custom, it seems the custom here in this day, was that the, the uh, father of the groom would throw the wedding feast. I wish that was the custom today, says the father of four daughters. What am I going to do? I don't know. If you have suggestions. A royal wedding feast. What does that conjure up? Well, extravagance, <laughs> wild, outrageous extravagance, abundance, beauty, joy. And that's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. That's what it's like to be in communion with God, to be in fellowship with God, and to live under the rule and reign of God. And so, to be in relationship with God, Christians, is, a, is to be a life of joy. And, and Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Joy should characterize our life as Christians. And it's helpful sometimes to, to shift our perspective on what the Scripture says and away from the world. Because in, in the world, we, we live in a time where even though the kingdom of God has broken in in Jesus Christ, it hasn't come fully, right? And we recognize that. Jesus, of course, brought into the world signs of the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is going to look like in his healing miracles. There will be no disease, no Ebola. <laughs> um, and, and his acts of mercy and kindness and his death on the cross, his sacrificial death on the cross, and then most chiefly in his resurrection from the dead that destroys death. And in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no death, there will be no disease, there will be no injustice, there will be no... Uh, tension between the races that we see here even in our city today. But in the meantime, the king is getting ready. He's getting the party ready. He's sending out invitations, and you and I are invited. And the question that this parable raises is, how will we respond? How have we responded to these invitations that the king has sent out? Before we look at the way people, various people respond to the invitation of the king in this parable, let's just think about the graciousness of the king in inviting them. The graciousness of the king 
in inviting and the persistence. Look at verse 3. The king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. They would not come. And then does he give up? No. Verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited. See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. This would be like saying today in our context, kind of translating this, there's going to be filet mignon, there's going to be lobster tail, there's going to be champagne. You can have as much as you want. Just come. Everything is ready. But they paid no attention to him. But what I want to highlight here before we get into the responses of the people in this parable is just the persistence of the king who represents God in reaching out to these people. And we saw that last week in the previous parable. The vineyard owner who's trying to reach these tenant farmers, his own farm, his own vineyard, and they're rebelling against him time and time again. And he keeps at it until finally they kill his son. And then judgment comes. But this is an image, I think Jesus is teaching this through these parables, that God is gracious and God is persistent in calling people to himself. It's part of the character of God that we need to recognize and that we need to give thanks for. In this latest edition of the Pair USA newsletter, I don't know if you subscribe to this. Anybody subscribe to City Gates, the newsletter of Pair USA? Um, I can help you subscribe if you're interested. But Lyle Dorset, who's an Anglican priest in the South in Birmingham, had an article, and actually this was published before in Christianity Today with a very wide circulation. Lyle Dorsett's an Anglican priest. I think he's in his 70s. And in this article, really, it's just a story of how God has graciously persisted in reaching out to him throughout his life. And he says, looking back 70 years, I can see how God has done this. It started, he said, when I was 13. I was part of a Lutheran church. It was a good church, he said, but I, I for some reason, the gospel never clicked while I was in that church. I never hear, heard Maybe the pastor gave a clear presentation of the gospel, but uh, it, it never really gripped me when I was a little boy in the Lutheran church until I went to a revival service, a tent revival service in the South, and I heard a preacher sharing the gospel, sharing about the love of Christ, and asking people to come forward and make a commitment to Christ. And Lyle Dorset said, at 13, I did that. And he said, when I did that, I felt the loving presence of Christ in my life and I felt a call to ministry. So that was one time God, he says, clearly reached out to me, took the initiative, and seized me. But then he says, as I got older and began to um, develop in my career, he became a professor in Colorado. He, got, he, he became very successful and settled into kind of an agnostic attitude towards God. And he said that things were going well professionally, but my life was empty, and to fill the void, I began drinking. And let me just read you what he said. One evening, my wife implored me not to drink around the children. I stomped out, found a bar, and drank until closing time. I left armed with a six-pack, drove up a winding mountain road, stopped at an overlook, and I blacked out. The next morning, I found myself on a dirt road next to the old Pioneer Cemetery in Boulder with no memory of the drive down the mountain. Now, if you've been in Colorado or Montana, you've seen those mountains and the windy drive down. That's a miracle, basically, that he survived that. And he said that. He goes on, he says, 
I realized, despite my hangover, I had experienced a miracle. In desperation, I cried out, Lord, if you're there, please help me. That's a very good prayer for any skeptic to pray. Lord, if you're there, please help me. That same presence I had met years ago blessed me again. I knew he was in the car and that he loved me despite my wretchedness. This encounter with Jesus Christ eventually brought healing to my life. And the point that Lyle Dorset makes is I can look back now on my life and I can see the way God took initiative in spite of my rebellion and reached out to me and saved me. I think that's a picture of what we see in this parable of God's character. He invites once, they reject him. He invites again, they reject him again. He's persistent. And I wonder if you recognize times that God has called out to you persistently. And I wonder if there are people in your life that you're praying for and sometimes you scratch your head and say, I don't know if they'll ever respond. But this is an encouragement to continue to persist in prayer and reaching out to people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in this parable, we see some different responses to the invitation, negative responses. Uh, there are people who pay no, invita- no attention to the invitation. This is remarkable, isn't it, that they've been invited to the king's feast and they don't care? They say, we're too busy. They don't pay attention. They put it in the stack of, with bills and things and they set it aside and yet the king's invited them to a, a feast. If, if you got a card from Prince, uh, who was it, William and Kate Middleton to go to their wedding, don't you think you'd drop everything to go? I certainly would. But these folks were so busy, they, didn't, they really spurred the invitation of the king. They said, I've got my business, I've got my farm, and, and so I'm just going to set that aside. And that, of course, is a, is a great insult to the dignity of the king. And in this first century culture, just to, to not show up at a wedding that you've been invited to was to bring shame. Shame on the family that hosted the wedding and shame on yourself. It was a social obligation to show up at a wedding. Unless you're on your deathbed, you need to be there. And yet they they rejected. And it wasn't just an ordinary invitation, of course, as we've said. It's the invitation of the king. And then there are some people who are invited by the king, and they actually seize the king's servants and they kill him. This is an act of treason. This is an act of rebellion against the king. And what Jesus is trying to get across at this point is this is what it's like to reject the invitation that's coming through me to come into the kingdom of God. And he's directing this, first of all, to the religious leaders of his day. You are rejecting the invitation. You say that you are in the kingdom, that you represent the kingdom, and yet the kingdom is here and you're rejecting and you're rebelling. So it's, first of all, directed to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But I think we can all relate at some level to these attitudes because we can hear God's call to us. Uh, we can hear him call, us, uh, call out to us to make his kingdom first priority in our life. And like those invited who paid no attention, we can say, well, I'll get to that later. I've got my business to attend to. I've got my work. I've got my hobbies. I've got my activities. Maybe even church activities. And all the while, we really spur God's invitation to commune with him, to fellowship with him, and to make his kingdom first. And then there are some who are even more blatantly rebellious, like those who who were invited and seized and killed the king's servants. There are some who think, if there is a God, I don't want God. 
I don't want God to rule over my life. I don't need God. And so they reject him. And Jesus is warning us here in this parable that that is a dangerous place to be spiritually, that there are consequences to rejecting his invitation. Yes, God is persistent in calling people to himself. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is long-suffering. But a day will come, this parable teaches, when the time to respond to the invitation is over. God's not desperate. He loves us, but he's not desperate. God doesn't need us. We need him. We're not the center of God's universe. God is at the center of the universe. And so the time comes when people uh, who spur God's invitation, who decline again and again and rebel against God, God will say, okay, you can have your way. I'll let you have your way. I'm gathering people for the kingdom, and if you don't want to be part of it, then there's something else in store. And we'll look at that as we close here in just a minute. So the king says, all right, those folks won't come, then invite everyone. Go out into the streets, go to the mall, go to the restaurants, start passing out invitations to everybody. The good and the bad are welcomed in the kingdom. Did you catch that? Invite the good and the bad. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a reflection of the truth that God, we, we don't have to be good to get into the kingdom of God. Uh, to begin stepping into the kingdom, you don't have to be good. You just have to respond to the call. And then once you're in, God will begin to change you and make you better. And that's why as a church, we want to have an open heart and, a, and offer an open invitation and love and respect anybody who walks through these doors, whether they're good or bad. And we want them to be in relationship with a God who can change them from the inside out. But Jesus says, or the, the king says, go ahead and invite everybody. Let's open this party up. And then the parable takes a very interesting twist. The king comes to the feast. The feast has been prepared. Uh, the people begin to fill the halls, and the king comes. And he sees a man without a wedding garment, and he says, how did you get in here? And this man is speechless. He's been caught. He knows he's guilty. He's crashed the party. And what comes next is pretty sobering. The king has him bound hand and foot, cast in the outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a picture, friends, of what it's like to be separated from God in a decisive way, being bound, no freedom, in outer darkness, no light, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those, that conjures up emotions of, of regret, of sorrow, of guilt, of resentment of anger, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is teaching us here that this is what it's like to be separated from God forever. This is a picture, and it's not popular to say, but this is a picture of hell. To be separated from God in a decisive way. And it's important to say Jesus teaches this, not me. Not my words. The words of Christ. Hell is not something that Preachers make up to scare people or guilt people or motivate people. Hell is something that Jesus teaches. And as ministers, we just are called to repeat the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, when he said these things, and it's a little bit later in the chapter, he's weeping over people, over the city of Jerusalem that rejects him. 
So it's not something to be said lightly. Why was this man sent away from the wedding feast? Why was he sent to this place of outer darkness? Well, simply, he wasn't prepared. He wasn't fit. He wasn't dressed appropriately for the wedding. Now, a lot of commentators have wrestled with this question. What does the wedding garment mean? Does the wedding garment represent the righteousness of Christ? We know that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and I think the epistle last week spoke to this in Philippians where Paul's talking about not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that's from Christ. We know that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are given the righteousness of Christ. We stand in His righteousness. So some commentators think that's what's going on here. The wedding garment is something that the king gives to clothe them in as an image of the righteousness of Christ. I don't think, even though that theology I agree with, I don't think that's what's happening here because there's not a whole lot of evidence that that kind of that happened in those days, that a king or a nobleman would supply garments for his guests. I don't think that's what's happening here. Other people say, well, maybe this is, is a symbol of good works, the purity of good works. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but faith is never alone, and there's good works that evidence that, are, that is the fruit of our faith. And when we stand before the judgment seat of God, there will be evidence, the fruit of good works, that we really belong to Him, that we're part of the kingdom. And maybe that's what's going on here. So there's different ideas of what this uh, wedding garment represents. But the point is that this man is not prepared to meet the king. He's at the party, but he doesn't belong. It's an image of, of final judgment, and I think he represents a religious pretender, a hypocrite. He's part of the crowd, but when the king inspects him, it's clear he doesn't belong. And I think this could be a picture of somebody who's in the church, a member of the church. Their name might be on the membership rolls, but their name's not in the book of life. Did you catch that in Philippians where Paul talks about the book of life? They look the part, they've made a profession, but there's no spiritual reality of Christ living in them. They're not in union with Christ. They haven't perhaps ever really put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternity. They haven't trusted in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or maybe they've said, Christ is my Savior, but in their life they've not made Him their Lord. And they don't live as if Christ is Lord of their life because He's not the Lord of their life. And so they're, they're in this position of religious pretending, pretense, hypocrisy that Jesus is always warning the religious leaders about. But it's a warning that that we need to hear as well. We need to make sure that our faith in Christ is genuine. So this parable has spoken about different ways that people respond to God's invitation. Some ignore it. Some outright reject it. Others, it seems, say yes, but inwardly they're saying no to God. And this parable, which begins with a party and an invitation to a feast, and it's, it's joyful, ends with outer darkness. Because Jesus is saying, this is how serious this is. To reject me or not, this is the consequence. This is how serious it is. It's not as if you know, we're so influenced in our consumer society that our choices are just preferences and they don't really have much consequence to them. I mean, I prefer Caldi's over Starbucks or 
I like to watch baseball over football. And that makes really no difference to my eternal state or anything else. It's just a preference. Sometimes we take that, we adopt that consumer mentality to our religious choices. Some people follow Jesus, some people follow Buddha, some people follow themselves. It doesn't really matter as long as it works for them. And Jesus is saying, no, <laughs> there are consequences for those who reject me. Few are called, many are called, excuse me, many are called, but few are chosen. Only a few respond rightly to Jesus' invitation. Many are called, few are chosen. And we see that in Jesus' ministry. Only a few people responded appropriately. Does this eliminate human freedom? Many are called, but few are chosen. God chooses people sovereignly. It's his initiative, his invitation. No, it doesn't eliminate human freedom. In the Bible, this sovereign call, the election of God, and human freedom and responsibility exist side by side. And we don't know how to resolve them exactly. It's a mystery. But you read a scripture like uh, 2 Peter 1-2, where Peter says, make your calling and your election sure. He's speaking to Christians who've been called, who've been elected, but he's saying you need to respond appropriately and make your calling and election sure. It's God's calling, but also there's our responsibility to respond. Or Ephesians 1, where he talks about, Paul talks about how we have been predestined in Christ, how we have been called before the foundation of the world, God's calling, God's sovereignty, God's election. But then you read a little bit later in the chapter, and he says, and when you believed, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. God calls, and then the response is to believe. So both of these things exist side by side in the Scripture. And this parable highlights our responsibility to respond and warns us against rejecting God's gracious, persistent call. As I thought about how to close this and just apply it, just a couple of things and we'll be done here. Number one is, this should remind us as a church that we really need to take responsibility and take seriously our call as Christians who know that we're headed to a feast. We need to take responsibility to invite others to the feast. We've got the invitations. <laughs> there's, stuff, there's stuff in our pockets and in our purses. We're full of invitations to this feast, and we need to develop relationships with people who don't know about this, who are outside of the kingdom, and not develop relationships to just to make a project out of people, but to, but to get to know them and to love them. And out of that, God will begin to work compassion in our hearts for them so that we can share this invitation. And I'm, I'm speaking to myself as much as to anybody else here about just a renewed compassion for the lost. And then the second thing is, again, my main emphasis is, if you're here today and you're not sure that you're headed for this feast, there's an opportunity to do so, to commit your life to Christ, to make him your savior, saving you for, from your sin and the consequences of your sin, and making him your Lord. I want all of us in this room to be at the feast together. There'll be a great party. The alternative is very dark, to be separated from the God of light and love and goodness forever. But we are called to join the great feast. Let's pray.